Okay, welcome in everybody to another episode of Mythic Existence, a weekly podcast about folklore, mythology, and spirituality. Today's podcast is going to be an exploration of what folklore actually is. I'm going to cover the history of the discipline, provide some definitions of the field, and offer some thoughts for why folklore is important. Hopefully you'll come to see that folklore is all around us and that we are the folk that create the lore. So settle in for another interesting episode. So a lot of you probably know that I myself am a folklorist. I think I covered my academic background and sort of my personal history on the first episode that I did, but I have a master's degree in folklore from Utah State University. And to become a folklorist, you kind of have to go down a different path than most other people. It's not like going to get a business degree or a finance degree or something like that. So I thought I'd tell kind of my story of how I actually became a folklorist, because I don't think I've really covered that. So like I said, I've always kind of had a unique way of seeing the world. Ever since I was a kid, I kind of understood that I was experiencing reality and thinking about, you know, just my daily experiences kind of different than the people that I was surrounded with. And while I was in high school, I was a pretty bad student in high school. Like, I always understood the concepts, but I didn't really like putting the work in, especially in classes like math and science, especially because they just kind of bored me. And even the social sciences and like English, honestly, I kind of got bored in because I wasn't really allowed to explore what was interesting to me. I just had to kind of fit into this box that they were trying to, you know, just get everybody to go along with. And so when I got to college, immediately I enrolled for a Greek and Roman mythology course at the University of Kansas because that was nothing like what was offered to me previously. And I'd always had an interest in mythology when I was like seven years old, I would watch the movie Hercules just over and over again. And yeah, I just always was really interested in mythology. So I couldn't wait to take that class. And when I got in it, I absolutely loved it. You know, we read the Iliad and the Odyssey, the Aeneid, we read uh, the plays of Sophocles, and we read some Euripides. And I really just loved it because it was something totally new. Like I, I, I loved having tests about you know what is athena the god of or why does apollo have a liar and stuff like that as opposed to the the typical questions that you would get on like an an ap government exam or whatever well i liked it i liked the government courses i liked the ap history and government courses so i guess that's not a great example but like it was very different than some mathematical formula that some, you know, high school math teacher just came up with, like, even though it it might seem like mythology, Greek and Roman mythology is way less tangible than math for me and my interests, like, I knew that it was going to be something that I could use in my life a lot more than, than math. So that was my first semester of college. And then When I was a college sophomore, I was in a Slavic folklore class and we got the syllabus and I remember seeing 
werewolves and vampires on the syllabus. And I was like, okay, hold on. Why has nobody told me that this was an option? Like, how, how am I just figuring out that you can actually study werewolves and vampires? Like, I've been watching documentaries and been reading books about this type of thing since I was a kid, but it's never once come up in a class that I've been in. I just, my, my mind was kind of, uh, kind of blown. And I think that that's an experience that a lot of folklorists have is just like, I mean, from the people that I've talked to that, that actually have gone and gotten degrees in folklore, they've kind of had that moment where they realized like, okay, I didn't actually realize that you could study folklore. And then from that on, it just changes the way you think of, you know, university education and just really your life in general. So from there, I started really exploring uh, folkloric concepts in my research. Like there wasn't a folklore degree or even a minor that was offered at the University of Kansas. I contemplated transferring to the University of Oregon uh, at one point to study folklore, but I just stayed in, you know, I stayed at KU and I ended up studying things like I wrote my capstone projects about Bigfoot and about the history of magic, which are definitely two things that a folklorist would study. And after I graduated, I knew that I wanted to go to grad school, but I wasn't sure what I wanted to study. Originally, my plan was to actually get a degree in history because that's what I I majored in history and English. I got an anthropology minor but I kind of had these bad experiences that pushed me away from studying history and from studying English at the graduate level. I, I was actually ready to submit my applications and take the exams to go into history, but I kind of had one professor that was like, he was like, why are you even getting, a, why do you want to get a master's degree in history? And I didn't have a great answer for it. And so right then I kind of understood like, okay, I, I don't need to do this. Like, I, I shouldn't go get a history master's degree. And then I was kind of thinking about going into doing English, but I went to a rendition of the Comedy of Errors at CU Boulder, which I love Shakespeare, and I'm going to do a Shakespeare episode probably next week, actually. But um, I, I just really didn't like it. And the whole experience kind of made me feel like I didn't want to be an English master's degree student. And then fast forward from there, about six months, I was still trying to contemplate what I wanted to do. And I was in my room surrounded by books. I looked around at them and I realized that the, the combining factor with the, of what they were all about was folklore and mythology. I remember I had a copy of Ovid's Metamorphosis. Definitely there was a, I think it was a Joseph Campbell book, probably. I think a Shakespeare book. I was just surrounded by a lot of folklore mythology. And so I was like, okay, this is what I want to do. So finally I had that set. And then the rest is history. I got my master's degree. Probably will one day get a PhD. But for now, you know, my purpose is to make this podcast, which is not all about folklore, but it's it's heavily about folklore and mythology. It's about themes that a folklorist would research, right? So that's kind of my own personal story. 
Okay, I want to cover the the history of the discipline of folklore so people get an idea of what it actually came from. And that's really the purpose of today's podcast. It's just like, I feel like there's a lot of misconceptions about what folklore is and what folklorists do. And so I just want to really clear it up because it's not something that you can get a great answer for very easily online. I mean, a lot of the stuff that I'm going to be talking about are, comes from books the history you can figure out more, but like the definitions of what folklore is, is something that you have to have a little bit of more specialized knowledge for. And folklorists themselves are the best ones to actually get that information from. So as far as the history is concerned, the study of folklore really came about during the modernization of Europe during the 1800s and a little bit before then. Scholars especially in Germany, it began to contrast the traditional things that had been in their cultures for many, many years, hundreds of years, thousands of years. uh, And they started contrasting those traditions with the modernity that was kind of looming overhead. And one of the first people, two people that did this was the, the Grimm brothers who published Grimm's fairy tales in 1812 and what they did was they went into the countryside and they began gathering these fairy tales and the oral traditions of the peasants and people from the lower strata of society so right there you have a couple of different things that were present at the beginning of the study of folklore was that they originally folklore was associated with the peasantry and the folk was associated with people that were from rural areas. And now that's very different. And that's one of those ideas that's kind of stuck a little bit. But then something that has lasted is the ethnographic aspect of this, where the Grimm's were going and collecting this, this knowledge, the things that the people were transmitting orally amongst themselves and were, were collecting them. And that's something that still folklorists do is what we do is we we do ethnographic research where we go out and we figure out what people are saying and what they're thinking and what they're doing. And that's really the goal of the folklorist. And so after that, after the Grimm's, Europeans, they kind of remained focused on the oral aspect of folklore. But American folklorists such as Franz Boas and Ruth Benedict, they expanded on that. And they began to focus on customs and beliefs. So that's when folklore began to be associated and placed within the realm of cultural anthropology. Um, and that, that, I mean, that's when it's kind of started expanding from just being, you know, oral folklore, the things that, that people were saying to the customs and beliefs. And this keeps on expanding. Like I said, that's still what we focus on, but at that time it was still more of the the folk was associated with more like illiterate people, which is definitely not anymore. And that was actually after, in 1846, a man named William Toms proposed the name folklore as an alternative to popular antiquities, which it was being called up to that point. And he, he called folklore a good Saxon compound. So it's a compound of the words folk and lore. 
And I'm going to go into that a lot here in just a couple of minutes because to understand what folklore is, you have to understand what those two words that are put together mean, folk and lore. And after William Toms, after Franz Boas, um, well, I guess kind of contemporary, Sir Edward Tyler and Andrew Lang in Britain, they began to do kind of the same thing of incorporating data, data from anthropology and folklore to try and reconstruct the beliefs and rituals of ancient man. And in 1890, Sir James Fraser wrote The Golden Bow, which is kind of one of the landmark texts that sought to do that, sought to reconstruct these ancient beliefs. And as the discipline spread, methods of identifying folklore arose. One of those is the historic geographic method, where they would try and actually identify how a, a folktale or a legend or a myth, whatever it was, spread. And some there's this thing nowadays called the ATU Index, the Arnie Thompson Uther Index, that identifies fairy tales into tale types. And that was also originally called the Finnish Method in reference to Auntie Arne. And uh, so, yeah, that was one of these these methods. It's still in place today. It's it's actually really hard to actually put the historic geographic method into use. There's some limitations by it, but the the tale type index is something that fairy tale scholars and folklorists use all the time to to say, okay, here here we're talking about you know ATU. Uh, I forget. I I don't have them memorized because there's like hundreds of them. But I mean, it's like. Okay, this is the Cinderella ATU where we have, you know, this this story of basically Cinderella. And you see that actually that, that tail type in a lot of different stories. And then after that, universities began to actually offer degrees in folklore. And so that's kind of the basic, the quick story of how folklore came to be. And so you can you can realize it's actually a pr- a fairly new realm of study i mean 1846 is when the the term was put into use like that's that's only that's less than 200 years you know it's it's less than 180 years so folklore still definitely has a long way to grow but it's it's useful to know that it's actually kind of a new discipline as far as the academic aspect of it is concerned. Granted, I mean, 1846 was before a lot of the American universities, but I still think that there's, uh, there's a lot of like, I don't know how to say it. There's a lot of fear within the academic study of folklore that, we're going to be marginalized forever because folklore is definitely a marginalized discipline, especially in academia. But really one of the reasons why I do this podcast is I think that it's just so fascinating and is so fun really that more people need to get into it, but not enough people know that it's something that you can actually do. So we need to have, literally we need to have kids know that they could become folklorists. I mean, when I was, nine years old, I didn't know that that was an option, and I wish that I would have. So, what I'm going to do now is really just dig into what folklore actually is, 
and I'm actually I'm going to be kind of going over a book chapter from my thesis chair, Dr. Lynn McNeil, who is a professor at Utah State University. She has a chapter in her book called Folklore Rules. Folklore Rules is the name of the book, and the chapter is What is Folklore? So this book is really the best introduction to what folklore actually is, if you want to actually get an idea for it. But she gives some great definitions, and without this basic level of knowledge, I don't think that you can actually know what folklore is. So... First off, we need to start by breaking apart that group, that Saxon compound folklore. So the question is, who are the folk? But before we can understand folk, we need to understand what culture is and what folk culture is. Typically, culture is used to describe things that like opera and attending plays. You know, like that's a very cultured thing. But folklorists and anthropologists actually use the term differently. And a man named Ward Goodenough said that a society's culture is whatever it is one has to know or believe in order to act in a manner acceptable to its members. So here we can see two things. First, we can see that culture is something that a society or group of people possess. Culture isn't a tangible object, but more it's a body of knowledge. So those are the two things. It's something that people possess and it's, it's a body of knowledge. So some examples that Lynn provides that show that this is a body of knowledge that you have are picking your nose in front of your boss. You, you, you know not to do that. You wouldn't greet your date's parents by kissing them. And you wouldn't try to flag down a server at McDonald's. This is the sort of knowledge that you have if you're part of a culture. And the thing is, is that we learn these rules by observation. This is the folk level of knowledge. And this folk level of knowledge is informal. It's unofficial. We're learning by observation. We're sharing and enacting our knowledge on an everyday, regular level. These are regular, everyday people doing this. So on the folk level, instead of laws, we have customs. Instead of guidebooks, we have experience and observation. And like I said, in the past, this meant... The folk meant rural, uneducated peasants, but today we talk about everyone. So when folklorists talk about folk groups, they're talking about people who share an unofficial culture, and that's kind of a big definition right there, is this unofficial culture. And we'll say that any group of people who share at least one common factor are themselves a folk group. So that's what the folk part of folk folklore is. It's the unofficial and informal levels of a group's culture. And when you think about this, you can you probably know that we're all existing in many folk groups at once. I mean, for me, I'm a part of the the Denver Broncos fandom is one fan one folk group that I'm a part of. I'm a part of the the podcaster folk group. I mean, us podcasters all probably have shared experiences that we're familiar with, whether it's, you know, working with recording equipment or the frustrations of using, you know, new software. I mean, those are a couple of folk groups that I'm a part of, and you could probably think of many, many that you're a part of. So that's one thing to really know is that you are the folk and that you are creating lore. So let's get into what lore is. 
Lore is what actually gives form to the folklore. Lore is the specific expressive forms that a group uses to communicate and interact. So in that way, folk becomes an adjective that applies to lore. Stories can occur in folk and official ways. We have folk tales and contemporary legends, but we also have mystery novels and comic books. So folk tales and contemporary legends are folklore, but mystery novels and comic books are not. And the reason that is, is that the thing that distinguishes folklore from other types of cultural forms is the way that it is transmitted. So before we get into that transmission, just to make sure, lore is the specific expressive forms that folk groups use to communicate and interact. That's what lore is. So when folklorists are trying to determine if something is folklore or not, we look at how it's being transmitted. And the two things that we need to have for something to be folklore is variation and tradition. So variation means that the same thing isn't just being passed on again and again. And I think that memes are a good example for this because, you know, you'll have this meme format, whatever it is, uh, you know, how it started, how it's going was just voted the uh, digital trend of the year. And that's something that actually Lynn McNeil and myself work on, who is the person whose work I'm discussing right now. Um, But, you know, you'll have that basic meme format and then it'll get changed. Like the picture will get changed or the font will get changed or, you know, the message that's contained within it will be changed. And that means that it's exhibiting dynamic variation. And that's one thing that you know, you need to have for something to be folklore is that to be, have uh, the possibility to even exhibit variation. And that's because folklore is, it's supposed to be adaptable and changeable. And it's often done anonymously. Um, It doesn't have to be done anonymously. I mean, if you, if you're still thinking memes, I mean, that could be by somebody who's very well known, or it could be done by Uh, you know, a random Twitter account or a random Reddit user or whatever it is. Um, And so Lynn in her book, she talks about how folklore is like a game of telephone. Um, Specifically, legends are like a game of telephone. And, you know, the, the game is like it's it starts with one thing and then something completely different is the result in the end. And that's often how things happen in folklore, especially with things that are shared by word of mouth. And that's that's usually stories, you know, um, or some kind of knowledge. But um, yeah, memes, I think, are a great example to show what variation is. And uh, I mean, also like quilting and making quilts, like you'll have this extraordinary dynamic variation between one quilt or the next but the folklore still remains because the knowledge of how to do it is what is being passed on which takes us to our second thing tradition which means that it needs to be passed on a lot of people think that traditional or tradition means um you know, this this thing that we have come up with in the past that is uh, a standard or a custom, basically. But what traditional in this 
uh, context means is that is passed on from one person to another, um, from one internet user to the next. So, you know, legends and rumors, like they can be passed on via the internet and still be traditional. So just because it's something new or something that is, I mean, it could be new or old, it doesn't matter, but what what needs to happen is for this form, this folklore to be, well, to for something to become folklore, it needs to be passed on and it needs to show variation. So for, for a meme, by this standard, for a meme to become folklore, it needs to be changed from that original format and it needs to be passed to another person. So um, that's what traditional means. And to kind of wrap this all up, the final definition that Lynn comes to is that folklore is informal traditional culture. So that's all stuff that we've covered in this kind of broader definition informal you know it's not something that's written down it's traditional it's passed on and uh, it operates within this matrix of culture so i'm going to read this final quote that is on page 16 of the book folklore rules that kind of sums all of this up folklore is informal traditional culture it's all the cultural stuff customs stories jokes art that we learn from each other by word of mouth or observation rather than through formal institutions like school or the media. Just as literature majors study novels and poems or art historians study classic works of art, folklorists focus on the informal and traditional stuff like urban legends and latrinalia. So that's kind of our broader overview of the definition of what folklore is. And I think it's a great introduction to the field. But I want to give some other, uh, you know, definitions and kind of backgrounds of what folklore is. Because, you know, it's something that we really haven't settled in on. And I think the definition of folklore actually is kind of uh, similar to what folklore is as it's being defined because it's mutable and it's changing and it's adaptable and it's being passed on and it's there's a lot of variation with it so it's kind of a meta thing going on here um so i'm going to go into some more definitions of that but first i want to say that folklore is what we believe do know make and say so this is kind of what folklore is Things that you can study within the realm of belief or what we believe are family traditions, worldviews, mythologies, supernatural belief is a big area of topic, something that I'm really interested in, uh, witchcraft and magic. And so, uh, you know, family traditions is one of those things that I think that a lot of people don't realize is folklore, but I mean... It's something that I, most families, I think probably all families, have to have these family traditions that fall into the realm of belief in folklore. I'll give you an example. In my family, the the day that we set up the Christmas tree in our house, at least this is how it was when I was growing up, my parents would ring a bell, and that was the Santa's elves 
that would come with an early Christmas present. For me, it was usually like a book or something like that. So that's a family tradition. That's that's family folklore. Um, and there's a lot of belief that goes into it. I mean, at a certain point, I stopped believing in elves. But, you know, my brothers and I believe that these were actually the elves that were coming, um, you know, to give us gifts. Folklore is also what we do. So dance, music, sewing, you know, making clothing. These are all things that we do that can become folklore. And I mean, especially within the realm of music, it it gets kind of shady between, you know, what is folk music and what is uh, not folk music. And I think, you know, most folklorists would kind of go back to that variation in tradition, but there's a lot that goes into defining uh, what is and what is not folklore or folk music. What we know can also be folklore, specifically stuff like how to nurse an ailment, how to prepare barbecue, how to make a potion or a beverage. So just to take the example of the barbecue, there's a big kind of umbrella topic in folklore called food waves, which involves those things like making barbecue or, you know, it could be family traditions for when we eat certain things. Um, and then, so there, there's a lot of overlap, as you can see, there's belief, uh, there's believe, do and know within just making barbecue or, or cooking something, but food and cooking can be a real big thing to study in folklore. And that's one of those things that I think that folklorists need to get that out there to more people that food falls within our realm of study because it's something that a lot of people, academics and lay people alike, are interested in. What we make can also be folklore, specifically architecture, uh, you know, folk art, definitely art and craft. And like music, there's a lot of kind of gray area between what is folk art and what is high art. And there's a level of subjectivity that goes along with it but like music it's kind of the same thing of you know how did you learn this craft was it institutionalized or did you learn it through word of mouth um you know are you using what kind of materials are you using all sorts of stuff like that and then what we say can also be folklore and that's a lot of what folklore is for sure because you know lore is the the definitive uh you know meaning of that word is of lore is you know stories and so what we say often falls into folklore specifically personal experience narratives memorats riddles jokes rumors urban legends folk tales fables i mean you can go on and on and on with that And, um, I mean, jokes is a big one that I think that is something that we need to get further out into the public's mind, um, and associate it with folklore because I mean, everybody loves comedy, everybody loves jokes. So that's kind of a, it's really important to know those five things, uh, and have, I mean, you know, there's complete, like, college courses that are built around those i mean you it basically if you looked at what is actually being taught in in academia for folklore you could 
make an association with every single one of those these uh, bigger things. Belief, what you believe, what you do, what you know, what you make, and what you say. Okay, let's get into some more of the definitions of folklore. I'm just going to read you off some of these definitions because there's going to be a lot for us to unpack to see what we can gain and, uh, you know, the knowledge that we can get from these definitions. So this first one comes from Mary Hufford. She says, what is folk life? Like Edgar Allan Poe's purloined letter, folk life is often hidden in full view lodged in the various ways we have have of discovering and expressing who we are and how we fit into the world. Folk life is reflected in the names we bear from birth, invoking affinities with saints, ancestors, or cultural heroes. Folk life is the secret languages of children, the codenames of CB operators, and the working slang of watermen and doctors. It is a shaping of everyday experiences in stories swapped around kitchen tables or parables told from pulpits. It is the African-American rhythms embedded in gospel hymns, bluegrass music, and hip-hop, and the Lakota flutist rendering anew his people's ancient courtship songs. So one of my favorite things about this quote is the focus on uh, the fact that folklore is hidden in full view. And that it's it's something that has to do with our everyday experiences. And that's something that I think a lot of people don't really necessarily f- associate with folklore as it being something that's all around you and something that you're doing uh, kind of constantly, honestly, and something that is pervading our everyday life. But, you know, Mary Hufford's definition is a little bit longer than, than others, but um, that sentiment is definitely including this definition it's one one of the reasons that's one of my favorites even though you can't package it into this quote this short little you know it's informal traditional culture but the focus on it being every day out there all the time something that's been with us since we were first born just in our naming practices um is something i love and then there's also jan brunvon he says folklore is the traditional unofficial, non-institutional part of culture. It encompasses all knowledge, understandings, values, attitudes, assumptions, feelings, and beliefs transmitted in traditional forms by word of mouth or by customary examples. So this one kind of makes me think of what we were just talking about with, you know, believe, believe, do, know, make, say, you know, he says values, attitudes, assumptions, beliefs, all that. So He's kind of, kind of encompassing what it is that we uh, are doing with folklore and making out of it, but it goes back to this traditional, unofficial, non-institutional part of culture. So, um, and I think that's really something that's important because, I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm pretty leery of the government and uh, you know institutions just in general. So it's great that we have our own way of doing things and that's something that really is what is important about folklore is that it gives expression to people who sometimes aren't able to express themselves and gives them a number another a number of ways of doing it and then delheims says that folklore is the study of community communicative behavior with an aesthetic expressive or stylistic dimension 
And this is what kind of makes his definition stand stand out, I think, is the this aesthetic, expressive, or stylistic dimension. So he's saying that there's it's not just everything, you know, there has to be some kind of uh, deeper sort of meaning. Um, there needs to be an aesthetic aspect of it. Um, and so it's not just normal communication. It's, it's some kind of um, artistic communication, which ties into Dan Benamos's uh, definition. I've actually got a, a funny story about Dan, Dan, uh, Dan Benamos I'll tell here in a second, but he says that folklore is artistic communication in small groups. So that kind of plays into it. There's an artistic aspect of it. The small groups thing is where I have sort of the problem. Like it, it doesn't need to be a small group. And how do you define a small group? I mean, like if you're thinking about there's a lot of folklore that is associated with like sports teams and uh, sports culture and fan culture, fandom. And I mean, you know, I'm in Colorado. Denver Bronco had Denver Broncos have millions of fans. So can you really consider that a small group? I'm not sure. But anyway, with Dan Benamos, uh, he is the the chair of I think the history department right now, or uh, some department at the University of Pennsylvania, Penn. And I emailed him saying that I was interested in studying folklore for a PhD at Penn. Um, and that I wanted to write about wizards, which I'm not doing anymore. Um, I'm waiting to do my PhD till a future date if I do it. But, uh, you know, he emailed me back and he said, well, it's great that you know about wizardry. Uh, you might be the exact person that we need. And I was like, oh, this is great. And he's like, yeah, our department is uh, fledgling so hard that we basically need a wizard to revamp it. Uh, and I would not suggest trying to do folklore at this school, which is one of those things where it's like that kind of beat it at home that there's, you know, folklore has a long way to go, especially in the academy. Um, but it's, I think, efforts like this that could give folklore a larger crowd, that the larger crowd that it really needs. Before I go into some more definitions, well, we've kind of covered most of the definitions. I'm going to go into uh, just a brief discussion about uh, fake lore and the folkloresque, which is a big area of topic. But I want to give some definitions between certain uh, oral forms of folklore that sometimes there's a lot of confusion between them. So... First off, we need to kind of parse out the difference between myth and legend because a lot of times when people are talking about myths, they're they're usually talking about um, actually it's actually usually like rumors that they're talking about. Um, It's usually not myth because what a myth is something that occurs in sacred time and sacred space. So space and time is kind of how we delineate stuff like myths and legends. Um, these myths are occurring in a sacred time and the, the space that they're occurring in is sacred, which is different from a legend, which is happening in historical time and in historical space. So, um, you know, legends, they're often, there's often a level of believability. You're not supposed to fully take it as true, but it's something that could possibly happen. 
not saying that myths can't happen, but it's like myths are like this happened and it was sacred. Legends are like, here's a story about the traveling hitchhiker. You know, there's this legend. Um, and then there's folk tales are similar to legends, but it's rooted in some sort of supernatural belief. So there's some kind of supernatural element. It's often with like animals or something like that. Uh, well, actually, sorry, that's a that's what a, f- a fable is usually associated with, associated with animals and a short story that has some kind of uh, moral idea that it's trying to convey. So that's what a fable is. So that was a very brief discussion of those, but I just kind of wanted to parse out those differences real quick. Um, one of the last things I'm going to cover is this discussion of fake lore and the folklore-esque, which is a big topic of interest in in folklore like i said it's something that i wrote about as a graduate student um so in the 1950s a folklorist named richard dorson he was i mean he's a really big name in folklore he was one of the uh he was a you know phd professor at university of indiana back in the 50s and he came up with this idea of fake lore i'm gonna read off his basic definition of of what fake lore is He says that in recent years, folklore has boomed mightily and reached a wide audience through best-selling books, concerts, and cabaret folk singers, even Walt Disney cartoons. But far from fulfilling its high promise, the study has been falsified, abused and exploited, and the public diluted with Paul Bunyan nonsense and claptrap collections. Without steering from the library, money writers have successfully peddled synthetic hero books and saccharine folktales as the stories of the people. Americans may be insufficiently posted on their history and culture, as the famous New York Times survey indicated, but their knowledge of these subjects is erudition compared with what they know about their own folklore. So, I mean, he's he's got a valid concern. And it's basically what he's saying is that Popular culture is taking things that are rooted in folklore and twisting it and then, you know, serving it to the people as it's their actual folklore or their actual history. And he's saying the the public is being kind of diluted with what actual folklore is. And so that's why he came up with the term fake lore. Uh, but recently, folklorists like Michael Dylan Foster have come came up with this term folkloresque. That kind of combats fake lore because fake lore has kind of been, uh, you know, sh- it, it's kind of been shunned as a term by academic folklorists, and folkloresque is the more in vogue term. And I'm gonna I'm gonna read you Michael Dillon Foster's definition of it so we can get a better idea. He says we propose the folkloresque as a heuristic tool, a kind of conceptual crowbar. To pry open the black box of how folklore functions in a world of cultural and artistic expression, increasingly dominated by forms of commercial and mass production labeled popular culture. It is a tool that encourages us to re-envision categories such as folklore and popular culture, to explore how they mutually enforce each other, and to productively problematize distinctions between them. So, I think kind of the latter portion is the main point. Uh, that, you know, it, it re-envisions how these two categories mutually influence each other. So that's a big point. Like folklore can become 
fake lore slash the folklore-esque, but then there can also be folklore made out of it, such as, like, fan art, um, you know, uh, I'm drawing a blank on the term right now, but, uh, you know, fan fan fiction, right? Like, the fans making their own stories out of the you know star wars or whatever it is that has drawn from folk culture so they kind of that's the point is that they reinforce each other and it doesn't have to be this clear you know kind of dualistic line between folklore and fake lore there's a a lot of intermingling between the two so that's something that i just i kind of have strong beliefs about and it's a it's kind of a big topic so i thought it was worth mentioning so the big question now is what are we supposed to do with all of this information? Um, I think that two folklorists, Martha Sims and Martine Stevens, give us sort of kind of a good takeaway. They say that uh, folklore helps us learn who we are and how to make meaning in the world around us. And so we're always trying to make meaning and folklore allows us to explore aspects of ourself and, you know, give us a better kind of pathway for guiding our guiding ourselves through the world. Um, and, you know, they also say that folklore is around us all the time. That's something that we've said, you know, folklore is something that's a part of our lives and we are the folk and we are all creating the lore. So you have to know that you're, you are the folk and you're and you're engaging in the, the process of folklore all the time. Um, and for me, you know, I, I, folklore is just fun, really. Like, it's it's an enjoyable thing to study. And it allows you to step outside of the boundaries of what is usually accepted, uh, expected of you. So, th- for me, that's a big thing. <laughs> um, doing things that go beyond what is normally expected. And that's something that folklore can do. You can also study what is more than is usually allowed. Uh, And that was a big problem for me, you know, growing up in like high school, especially was like I was interested in Sasquatch and UFOs and stuff like that. And it was something that I couldn't study in my classes. But in folklore, it's like, yeah, that's what you're supposed to be studying is stuff like that. And we need more folklorists. Folklorists are, by the very nature, we're we're critical thinkers. We care about individuals and people. We know the importance of culture and traditions and how they adapt. And I mean, that's especially important right now in this, you know, COVID crazy era where there's a lot of rumors and conspiracies going around. Folklorists can, can get to the root of why those are arising and what they're saying. And, uh, you know, the folklorist toolbox is really the thing that is most needed, I think. So that's it for today's episode of Mythic Existence. Folklore is a field of study that is still actually quite young, but it needs new, brilliant minds to infuse the field. If you're at the university, take a class. And if you're like me and out of school, listen to podcasts like this and investigate how you're making folklore every day. Thanks for listening. See you next time.